Welcome to the Blue Roads Changemaker Podcast. I'm Patty Talbot, CEO and co-founder of Blue Roads Education Group. In this series, you'll enjoy hearing from amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who have taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues. We structure these interviews around the Blue Roads slogan, Homegrown Solutions for a Patchwork World, and ask participants to tell us about their origins, their work to address issues in their communities, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible, so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will help you to hear their stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker journey, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. In today's episode, we hear from Dr. Wendy Eckenrod about her work to address homelessness for youth throughout the New River Valley in the southwestern part of Virginia where we both live. I was fortunate to work with Dr. Eckenrod for a number of years at Radford University, and I've been really excited to learn that she has established the Eckenrod Foundation to work toward solutions for unaccompanied youth. It's a situation that she knows personally as she found herself homeless for a time during her own teenage years. Listen to her story and how she's using her homegrown beginnings to fuel her solutions for our patchwork world. would consider my home to be Patrick County, Kibler Valley specifically. My great grandmother grew up there and I used to spend my summers there. So I was born and raised mostly in Miami, Florida, but I always spent my summers with her. I would consider that to be my home and my family is really important to me. My dad is, has been really influential in my life. He mostly raised me I think growing up in Miami, um, I grew up around a very eclectic community where I was actually the minority in some ways, being white. And and really, if you don't speak Spanish in Miami, you'd be hard pressed to, to get what you need. So um, I, I feel quite privileged to have that eclectic background. I moved to Virginia when I was 19 and lived with my grandmother. And so... I had a lot of culture shock and I saw racism and poverty in a very different way. I came from a very urban area and moving to a very rural setting was was quite shocking for me. So that impacted me. I was also homeless at 17. My experience being homeless as a teenager is probably very vanilla compared to what other people experience. I continued to go to school. I didn't know not to go to school. I didn't know that that wasn't an option. I continued to have a part-time job and do my homework and go to school and play sports and and all of that. And so when I look at my resiliency, I guess, through that period, I can see things that were in place for me from both an internal perspective and an external perspective and really appreciate those things. And, and so that 
has shaped a lot of the Eckenrod Foundation as a whole, but providing those supports. And I also worked as a school counselor for five years in a very rural area. And so I was able to see poverty and homelessness from a systemic level, which really helped shape me in a really good way because I saw the complexity of homelessness. Whereas before I just experienced debt as an individual, but when you're in a system with kids and families and you're, you know, seeing parents, single parents work multiple jobs and trying to make ends meet and then having homeless students and taking care of them, it really propelled me to want to make a difference in my community with that specific population which is unaccompanied homeless youth. I think being in a leadership role really requires you to do some personal work. And I think part of that personal work is reflecting upon your own experiences. I think being a woman, I was discriminated against. And at a very young age, that was confusing to me. And I had to sort through that out and figure that out. And then seeing discrimination and racism and um, things like that occur within the clients that I had sat with and experienced and then kind of walked along their journey and like a, like a clinical mental health field, I was really pushed in a lot of different ways to break down barriers so that I could help people. For example, uh, I remember this one African-American client male that I had and it there were a lot of things that we had to work through. I had to gain his trust. I had to create safe space for him. And I will never forget our counseling professional relationship ended. He he was impacted in a really positive way. So that really helped me to realize that building those personal connections with people and breaking down those barriers is really important. And I think in education, you know, I think our education pushes us really take the perspective of other. You have to do a lot of personal work as a leader. Whenever I do talk to community members about our homeless population, in Montgomery County, they're just shocked. And so I think that unaccompanied homeless youth, I think that they're very invisible in our community. So there's 56 high school students in Montgomery County, and that doesn't include the New River Valley. And so when we look at that number, 56, that's a lot of high school students that are homeless. And so one of my goals is to create awareness about just the numbers, but also about why that population specifically is vulnerable. The McKinney-Vento law goes into greater detail about homelessness in terms of a definition. And so the federal government really looks at homelessness in terms of like being out on the streets. But the McKinney-Vento Act looks more closely at circumstances where children are, are not living with their parents and they're living with their friends or they're couch surfing or they're living in abandoned buildings and not suitable or habitable or living in tents, things like that. So the McKinney-Vento Act gives a, a clear definition of our homeless youth. And that's the definition that's used to identify 
those 56 students. So I would have fallen into that category at 17. I did sleep in my car a few times, especially the first night when I was kicked out of the house. And I can share that story because my family and I laugh about it now. I didn't know where to go. And I had um, a test the next day. So I went to school. Doors of the school was unlocked, which is unheard of nowadays. <laughs> but in, in 1990, you know, the school was open. I went in and I studied for my test. I ate dinner from a snack machine and went and slept in my car. So that example is clearly homeless. But then I approached one of my friends and, and I lived with her and her family. So I still would have been by McKinney Vento. Um, been classified as an unaccompanied youth. I'm very close with my father, but his parenting style is very authoritarian. And it was a difficult living situation because his business was in Virginia. Something happened and I won't go into greater detail, but essentially he had to move to Virginia to save his business. And so he did that. And he had just started dating a woman. And so I moved in with this woman and her daughter, which is now my stepmom. So he would come home maybe like once a month, maybe like once every two weeks. So I didn't see him very often. And that was a difficult situation to live in. The reason why I set it up that way, that he was very authoritarian is that he, that's just his parenting style. It doesn't mean that he doesn't love me, but he was very strict had high expectations. And we kind of joke about it now because I make jabs at him like, oh, you have like avoidance or you have like uh, you projecting or something like that, you know, which we laugh about now. And he's, and he'll stop every now and then and look at me and, he, and he'll say like, oh, you're, you're right. <laughs> so I can, I can call him on it now. And I, and we can, we laugh about this story. And sometimes when people hear it, they just kind of stop because we're laughing about it. So I'll tell you the story. My dad came home. He was at home. I got home from school. When I say he's home, he'd been gone for like two, two weeks, maybe three weeks or four. So when I got home, I was like, Oh, my dad's home. That's, that's great. And so I had just gotten, gotten, like finished with soccer practice. So I had my cleats on and my shin guards. I take my shoes at the door. I sit down at the kitchen, you know, the dining room table. And I started doing my work because I had work to do and I had um, a test the next day. So my dad is angry about something. And, and we have tried to rack our brains out to figure out what it was that he was angry about. And none of us can remember because it was so silly. So he was angry about something and he would walk in to the dining room, yell at me, turn on his heel and walk out still yelling at me. So he was like on this rant about something that none of us remember. And I just remember sitting there and this is like back in the late eighties, early nineties. So our dining room wall was like all mirror. And so I'm facing this mirror and I'm watching my dad several times come in and yell at me and then leave. And I look at myself and had this surreal moment. And I'm like, this is so messed up. Like I'm a good kid. Like I'm sitting here doing my homework. I haven't seen my dad in a few weeks and he's yelling at me over something really stupid, but he walked back in and I looked at him like dead straight in the eyes. And I said, you're a and he was shocked 
the entire house went silent. My sister was there or my stepsister. She had friends over. My stepmom was cooking in the, in the kitchen and it was like dead quiet. And my dad and I looked at each other and he, and he just pointed at the door and said, get out, get out, get out. No daughter is going to talk to me that way. Get out. And I was like, really? <laughs> like, okay. So I, I packed up my school backpack. I went to my home and I got some clothes and I, and I left and I drove about maybe like a couple blocks and pulled over. And then I was like, where am I going to (laughs) go? I had nowhere to go. I didn't have, my mom lived in England at the time and we did not have a close relationship. I had no family members, no aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents. I was homeless for quite a while and eventually went back home. And then when I was 19, I, I, moved to Virginia with my great grandmother. And so my relationship with my dad did eventually heal. That was my homeless experience. And so since then I have been involved with homeless institutions or shelters in some capacity. I do trips with my Humdi 300 students and take them down to like day centers and things like that. I always learn more about what you go through. And I do realize and recognize that, you know, my experience is very vanilla. Yes, I slept in my car, but it was temporary. And a lot of youth don't have anywhere to go, or they did have somewhere to go, but then can't stay on the friend's couch forever. And it's really hard for them to ask for help. I could say the same thing about myself. Like it is surprising to me to sit across from them and, and say like, oh, you talk to your, to your mom, you know, and, and they will say, but she doesn't know I'm homeless or, or they don't access the resources that they do have available to them because it's hard for them to ask for help. So that's been eye-opening for me. I've been homeless and I've worked with population for a long time and I'm still, I still learn a lot. That part's good because it helps me be creative and think about services and things that those students need. And I will say probably the most touching experience that I've ever had as an educator in higher ed is that when I took my students down to the day center in Roanoke, which is a center that's established just during the day, they don't provide housing. They have washing machines, they have showers, they have food, they have video games, they have beds and places for them to sleep during the day if they choose to. They have an art area. When my Humdi 300 students went there, a lot of them did a campaign on campus to collect underwear, socks, clothing, and then brought it down. And then some of them did volunteer at the day center after that. So that, that was really touching because it wasn't, they did that on their own initiative. Um, That was really profound for me to be a part of somebody else's growth and learning and then watching them really take their own steps in in helping the community. I'm now attending meetings for the NRV homeless housing projects in our area. So the Eckenrod Foundation will provide both emergency and transitional housing to our unaccompanied and homeless youth. Getting into the grant cycle in terms of federal funding, their cycle just closed. So we're up for the next cycle, which is really good. 
so that we can get funding that way to get capital to actually purchase homes and or do a campaign for people to donate homes. And so ultimately what the model that seems to be the best model is to have a house every school district in which an unaccompanied homeless person could go to and or an apartment. A, A lot of homeless youth are incredibly independent and some of the rules that would be appropriate for kids that haven't had to fend for themselves just don't make sense. So one of the best models is to have a house with a house parent where there's an adult there that's providing them mental health services. It's a caseworker, but it's it's in a different setting. So making sure that they have their dental, their health needs taken care of, that they're going to school and or a job or they're being productive in some way and providing, uh, ideally it would be a master level um, mental health commission. That model that we're looking at and the other one is apartments where they have some more freedom. There are some legal pieces around it. They're under the age of 18. They're still considered minors. That is a really sticky situation, but they can, they can, they can assume their legal rights. So we would help them to go through that process. And typically uh, under legal restrictions, emancipation is, is a challenge for an individual to get, but in the case of homeless children that have been out of the home and have some independence and a job and things like that, it's a little easier for them to gain their own rights. Because they're minors, there's some legal pieces that we have to negotiate, but those are all good things. Those are all good things to navigate. In terms of the Eckenrod Foundation, I think one of the things that I have learned working in various different settings is that it really needs to be a sustainable model so that we incorporate some kind of business entity within the model itself so that it provides employment for the students. If they choose it, the model becomes financially independent from grants and and other things like that. So that's something that's really important. We've looked at different things like farming, partnering with other businesses, but that piece is really important because grants, we call them soft money because it's, there's a cycle and funding is limited. So we'd like for that model to be sustainable. And the other thing that I think is important for children that are considered unaccompanied youth, it really is the high school students and they're counted all the way up to age 24. So there is a process for helping them to transition into adulthood. So that, that piece is also really important so that we would look beyond the high school experiences and help them get college ready if they chose that route or tech ready or job ready. Federal grant fund funding is run or actually transitioned um, a few years ago to be community-based, which I think is a really good idea so that communities aren't duplicating services and they're threading themselves together, overlapping services, because I think that that's one of the things that I've seen kind of repeatedly is the need to wrap around services. So it's not just the housing, it's the mental health, it's the 
physical health, it's the dental, it's all those other pieces too. That federal funding piece is our first priority of grants. And I have a research project underway that kind of drills down into the specific needs of the homeless individuals in our area. And secondly, fundraising is important to get buy-in from the community. The numbers that we have just in Montgomery County, there's 261 homeless public school students or building awareness, increasing that piece is really important for community. Right now we're in the process of planning for a gala that's a fundraiser. We're super excited about that. That will create a little bit of revenue. We'll continue to do fundraising events. We've got some really good ideas in the pipeline. It takes a lot of time (laughs) for things to unfold. Where's my magic wand? When you see students and families who are really struggling and have needs, so that that's a frustration, but um, but it's just part of part of making things happen. Is it it takes longer than than you'd like. I have some things embedded into my class. I have graduate research students. So the day that I'm, that I'm collecting now, they're going to be given the homeless topic and they get to pick something like gender or race um, or something like that. And then in November or December, we're going to have some community forums where we invite community members in and stakeholders and really civic leaders in our area. I think those community forums will be really powerful. They'll be free and I will be presenting and then some of my students will be presenting the app and our area, which will be really good. So, you know, we always talk about that whatever we do, it needs to be informed by data that will help make a really strong case for funding, but also to build, build awareness too. So personal to me, my teachers that I was homeless my coach, my coaches didn't know that I was homeless and I didn't know to reach out for help. I just, I just kept doing what I was doing and I was still having the same academic expectations. On the other side of that, if I were a teacher and found out that my student had slept in their car last night and had like a pop tart for dinner, no wonder why they didn't do well on their exam. And especially where we're at in our development cognitively, we just, we just think that we should just keep going. High school students have been interviewed. There's very few qualitative studies done on on that population specifically. And a lot of them are like, I don't understand why my teacher yelled at me because I haven't been in school for three days and I don't have my homework done or I'm behind, you know, they're like, don't they know, you know, like, um, and, and they don't know to stop and pause and, and not make assumptions about their student. I think that they would be shocked to find out that their student is living in the car. Some, some teachers still might be rigid and not flexible, but I would hope that our educators would have a lot of empathy. I think that there's awareness for teachers, but for them to understand why students become homeless, 
like child abuse and neglect and in, in sexual abuse, that's the number one reason why students leave. They figure out that they're mobile and that they can physically leave. It's really rough because I've seen some situations where the kids are told to leave. For example, like the boys get bigger and then they start standing up for themselves. They are literally asked to leave the home. The children that are homeless, 40% of them identify as LGBT. So they're being kicked out because of their sexual identity. That is really criminal just to look at one dimension of your child and say that's unacceptable. You can't stay here. Um, I had one student, he came out as gay and the next day he walked by, he just popped his head in my office and said, Hey, Miss Seconrod, I wanted, just wanted to tell you, I told my mom, she took me to a psychiatrist. I'm not gay anymore. And he just kept walking down the hall. And that was the last day that I ever saw him. When I called his house the next day, because he was absent, his mom said, oh, I kicked him out. To me, that is horrific. He's worthy of love and a good life. So it's one thing to provide housing, but then to provide the mental health support services along with that to help individuals navigate the trauma that they experience as homeless is a complete whole other issue. In addition to that, there's layers of trauma. So the things that led up to the event of homelessness and then the abandonment and then the other issues that a lot of people have to deal with, the additional trauma that's piled onto that is another thing. So that's just one side of, but it's, it is putting a bandaid on the the real underlying problems. One of the things that I'm starting to do along with providing the housing piece is providing like monthly parenting classes to help build in the skills that parents need to navigate those difficult things. My higher global vision is to decrease child abuse and neglect and to decrease homelessness by strengthening parents and their and their parenting skills. Um, because how you parent a one month old is different than how you parent an 18 month old. And that's different than how you parent a seven year old and then a 16 year old, you know, it, it is a, it is a constant evolution of parenting skills. And I don't think that that's talked about a lot. And uh, I, I just recently wrote a book um, called Under Construction, and it's it's about the teenage milestone. It helps parents recognize that the milestones that and the skills that they need to help their children navigate those milestones are totally different than putting a toddler in timeout. With my 16-year-old timeout, you know, I get eye rolls. I'm like, oh, is that your love language? Eye rolls. (laughs) Or the glare, you know, or like, did you really think that was funny? And then just like the deadpan glare. Yeah. So, so that, that is a part of the, a secondary mission is to help strengthen parents and helping parents be healthy. Thank you so much, Dr. Eckenrod, for sharing your changemaker journey with us. 
Your story provides another powerful example of how changemakers are often created when they find ways to overcome their own challenging situations. I hope everyone will watch for Wendy Eckenrod's book titled Under Construction. I encourage you also to watch for ways that you can be involved in efforts like those of the Eckenrod Foundation or initiatives in your own communities to build strong families and to be ready to provide necessary supports and services for youth should they find themselves homeless and unaccompanied during such a crucial time for their development. Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you will follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own Changemaker journey. Contact us at www.blueroadseducation.org.